0: Gentlemen, welcome to the Gird Up Podcast. We are glad that you are with us as we get started. A friendly reminder that nothing we say here is meant to be perceived as the official statement of doctrine or belief of any particular school, church, or calling body. We are not affiliated with any particular school, church, or calling body. And that everything we say here is simply the belief or opinion of the man who states it and nothing
1: more. Let's get started with the show. Today's Gird Up podcast is sponsored by the Christ for Disciples podcast. I'm Pastor Paul Steinberg, son of Ken, father of six, including five sons. Each weekday on the Christ for Disciples podcast, I apply God's word to raising the next generation. If you are a parent, teacher, mentor, coach, or all of them, or have any other connection to children, consider taking just 10 minutes, 600 seconds a day to listen to Christ for Disciples and get direction and gospel power to disciple the youngest generation. Subscribe to the Christ for Disciples podcast by going to ChristForDisciples.com or search it for Christ for Disciples on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and all those other podcast providers. Every weekday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, take just 600 seconds so Christ won't take second in your life or the life of your children. Listen on the way to work or school or while making breakfast. Christ for Disciples podcast, empowering with the one who changes our children. Make it the best 10 minutes of the day. Christ for Disciples Podcast. Blessings to you. You are listening to the Gird Up Podcast.
0: To gird up is an ancient way of preparing oneself for hard work or a battle ahead. Our work is to reclaim masculinity in the modern world and to live out our calling as men of God. Here you will find a community of believers working hard to become the men that God created us to be. Now it's time to roll up your sleeves and let's get to work. Okay, so we're live here. Uh, our guest today is Professor Mark Paustian. Um Been on the show before a couple of different times. Really glad to have you back. And it was kind of a heroic effort to get here today, so really appreciate that. <laughs> heroic. Um,
2: you drove down the hill. Basically.
0: <laughs> well, and, and I, um, yeah, let's, I, I, the, it's a. It is a commitment to, to do something like this, and obviously we're not compensating yeah. you or anything. So it's great to be with you again. It's Simon. a. It's a joy to have you, and a blessing to have you. It's good
2: to see you around campus now, man. Too. Yeah, it's, I. You college student, you.
0: I know. I. I said I would never ever do this, and here we are. <laughs> the Lord works in mysterious ways. You guys. In this case, I don't think it was that mysterious. I think everybody saw this coming except for me. <laughs> but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad to be glad to be back. So, um, you've been on before. Um, last time we talked to you, you were working on your doctoral thesis, and um, you know, what's what's going on now? What do you got going on? Oh, as
2: far as uh, other projects, um, just- Or even f- just life. Well, I just finished a book. Okay. Uh, a book on worship called Our Worth to Him, designed to turn upside down how a person might think of defining worship, you know? Um, so that's coming out in fall. It's been a year of writing, frankly. A year, tons of writing. been writing a Preach the Word newsletter for pastors- um, was just asked to do a symposium paper at the seminary in fall on pastoral spiritual wellness, which I think is going to be fun to explore and think about. Um, they were thinking about how, <clears throat> excuse me, pastors have, well, anybody has been under pressure these days. Pastors have their own kinds of pressure during COVID, and so they want something not necessarily heavily academic, but they want something. They said just a kind of a drink of cool water of the gospel. And so that would be a joy to kind of warm myself up to and start writing. So it's been a lot of writing, basically.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, um, the idea of ministering to ministers is one is a big one, um, a big one in my heart, I think. Um, and I know that I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of people that understand that, too. Mm-hmm. um so it's good to talk about for sure yeah, was that your idea was that something they asked you to do
2: something they asked me to do a couple of days ago actually so that's awesome they they want the whole thing structured around romans chapter 8 and so i always think just like writing the worship book i thought is there a better thing to be thinking about for you know in that case like three years of my life well is there a better thing to think about than romans 8
1: and
2: yeah what it means to be well spiritually for the next uh Six months, that will be my obsession, I guess. That's
0: awesome. No, that's scary.
2: I don't I accept these things with fear and trembling. But that's a great honor. I almost can't believe it.
0: What's the most intimidating project you've taken on so far?
2: Well, <laughs> I think one might be, ironically enough, doing um, faculty gr- faculty, graduate banquet entertainment. <laughs> so nothing very serious, but <laughs> that stretches me in a whole other kind of way. In fact, I'm, I'm up uh, in about two weeks for... Our pastor track students, like, okay, get up and sing some songs, and yeah. stuff like that.
0: So. Well, you say that's the uh, that's the whole peer the peer idea, you know. When you put a book out there or something, you know, or, or even this kind of thing, you put it out there for the world, and you say, you know, here it is, take it or leave it. But when it's your peers, and you got that immediate yeah. feedback, you know,
2: peers and it's your a students, whole different. Students, oh, I yeah. suppose, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, it's a fun. It's always a friendly audience, so I'm not that worried about it. But Good. That, that's on the list of. So, what was your question? What's the biggest thing? Yeah. Um <clears throat> the biggest thing I've ever taken on was starting a church from scratch. So that was that was a crucible was <laughs> test and challenge and but what a joy. Second biggest thing probably was the PhD, which is finished now. Last time we talked on your podcast, I don't think it was, but
0: Yeah.
2: So that was probably second on the list.
0: Yeah. And you had two daughters getting married at the time, too. That,
2: that belongs in the list, too, as well. So two father-daughter dances, two uh, <laughs> daughter wedding sermons, and well, five weeks apart. Wow. Uh, but all was, all was blessed. All, yeah. All it all went blessed. well? Uh, you can't even believe it. You know, Especially the son-in-law who was new to the faith. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just tremendous. He is a Christian, or he's a counselor, and I see him beginning to integrate. His faith with it, with his profession, even just praying for his clients on the way home. It's yeah. just fun to talk to him about that integration. So, God is good. God is just God is good.
0: Very cool. Yeah. Um, could repeat your microphone for a second? Is the do you see that little U-shaped thing on the front of it? At all, maybe. Here, I'm just gonna shift the microphone. Okay, and pick up your voice a little bit better. And
2: go like that. Okay,
0: and then hopefully it will get a nice <coughs> deep. Voice okay. there,
2: all right. Okay, I don't think I have
0: it. Oh, there we go. All right, this um, is my
2: nice, nice, deep voice. No? Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: now you got the strong oh, voice goodness. going. <laughs> um, so I'm what well, you are a communication scholar, among all kinds of other things, right? Oh, um, so, we we can. <laughs> um, and uh, well, so obviously, the topic in the world right now is COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Um, COVID 19 is brought a lot of difficulties on us I think that I mean obviously everybody's concerned about the economy um, but far more concerning especially for people uh, who are involved in ministry is the relationships between people um, and so I the, if you've been anybody who's been listening to the stuff that we've put out in the last couple of weeks um, you see you know the guys uh, were on uh, earlier in the week talking about um, the difficulties for college students um, and obviously As a professor, this is something you see on a day-to-day basis as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But just how frustrating and difficult it can be, especially for people who are new to a campus um, or any campus or job or whatever it might be, um, who are trying to build those relationships. And then also on the flip side, how frustrating it can be to see valuable relationships deteriorate um, simply because you can't see each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I guess the, the basic... You know, the place to start maybe is what's the value? What? Why Why is this such a big deal um, to human beings to be able to communicate face-to-face? Mm, that's a
2: good, uh, big question. <clears throat> <laughs> let me start with some Dietrich Bonhoeffer, shall we? The Lutheran pastor who was implicated in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler, that, that guy. Fascinating character.
0: Now that is a Lutheran right yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> I
2: mean, he's a, he's a problematic writer that people acclaim from all kinds of positions, so it's, he's hard to know what to make of sometimes, but um, my favorite writing of his is just so timely. It's called Life Together. It is a book about the underground seminary he ran in the extremity of World War Two and uh, what they found. And the book begins with just a a treatise on the blessing of the physical presence of other Christians. Just think how timely that is. Just the blessing of being in the same place. And so, um, and he writes about communication from a recognizably Lutheran voice in all kinds of ways. Um, but so that's kind of a starting point for me that I that I would hope that when we talk about the new normal, that we are not quick to to um, let some of the most beautiful and poignant human capabilities just kind of fall away. So. Why does it matter? There are things that can only happen face-to-face. There just, they just are. There are things that border on miraculous that happen face-to-face and not otherwise. So when I teach communication, there's several places in the course where we just kind of pause and have the hallelujah. One is um, just the mystery, miracle of interpreting nonverbal communication, taking cues across 20 channels at one time and just intuiting what they mean. And in instantly, not spending a second of cognitive thought, but just uh, getting it through the full richness. This person is ashamed. Or this person is, mm-hmm. whatever they, whatever they are. Another is, in conversation. So, if we like each other, and second variable is if we attend to each other, really physically attend. This whole set of mysterious stuff happens. We we fall into sync with each other. Um, you can see it on the brain scans. Where the same parts of the brain are lighting up. Simultaneously, it's kind of like bumblebees flying; they shouldn't be able to. Scientists just don't know how this is possible. They you start to breathe together, micro expressions show up on your faces, and it's called getting in sync. And it's it's uh, sixty times faster than sort of the cognitive link between our brains. As we that make any sense? if we think through what to say to each other, there's something else happening, a deep bridge between us, and it's the it's just simply the opposite of asynchronous communication. It'll just ne- they'll never happen on a text message. It'll never happen, you know. So there's several things like that. Um, I'm blanking on another one. There's a third one too. Um, I guess I would just say the mirror neuron piece. Maybe that's it. Yeah. So part of the I'm kind of maybe all over the place, Charlie. But part of the COVID thing that concerns me the most is is uh, the closing window, the short window of time for children to gain certain human capabilities. Mm. Like uh, if they're not looking into their mommy's faces, then their own mirror neurons are not being trained, and they won't—they'll never be able to read what's in those faces to the degree they they need to be and should be. And that window doesn't last forever, you know, right. childhood. So reasons it matters that we are face to face and present and and attending to to each other. There's tons of them. Um, many scholars think that what's eroding right now today. And I think the COVID thing only accelerates it. So it was already happening; it was already happening that perspective-taking skills are falling off a cliff um, with people who are hyper-connected. You know, morning to night, the ability to walk in somebody's shoes and the ability to empathize was already eroding because of hyper-connectivity. And the issue is that COVID just forcing all this additional layer of of screens and barriers between us and and so on, it, it's, uh, I think that COVID was, ten- is tending to take us faster to where we were on our way already. And that's kind of a negative view of technology. There, there are positives too, of course, uh, obviously. But mm-hmm. but uh, why is it necessary? Because these human capabilities, beautiful capabilities, are falling off a cliff at a, quite an alarming rate. Um, and it doesn't help to have masks on. It doesn't help to not be able to, to take in those expressions. You know, just doesn't help to. Well, I guess I'm. I'm. My point is maybe made. There's probably more to that, and there's things we can say about how to try to push back on that. But, but. Um, yeah, these are kind of alarming times from that perspective.
0: Right. Um. So, if I'm if I'm a young person who's starting to recognize that in myself that, you know, I am. You know, I'm. I'm starting to lose. Whether it's losing the ability to communicate the way I did, you know, just when you get out of practice, you lose it. Um, Or whether I start to recognize, you know, I'm losing some relationships. Um, Do you have any advice as to how to start moving back in the other direction?
2: Yeah, I I think that there are, well, one scholar named Sherry Turkle, um, brilliant lady. She essentially advocates three ways to push back so that we, we can retain what's beautiful about technology. And the, the obvious one, the main one, is just real face-to-face presence, improvised communication, face-to-face. Disconnected, even having a phone in the room turned off, affects communication in some subtle way. Where you're, part of your mind is waiting for that thing to, to summon you. You know. Mm-hmm. So it would be for a young person to recognize that um, there's something very special that you don't want to lose, which is real, real-time face-to-face presence, you know, I I guess I worry about any young person whose main way of socializing is social networking, that there might be something this person doesn't even know what they're missing. You know, the interesting question is, does that person, should we say about that person, well, at least they have that, at least they have got Facebook, otherwise they'd be completely alone, or do we say, they may never find out what a friend is, they Mm -hmm. may never find out what is possible between two people if they are hyperconnected, and with that comes all kinds of anxiety. Right. all kinds, All kinds of anxiety. W- one, one way that anxiety comes in, I think, if, if you don't nurture real friendship face-to-face, real-time, is not only that the world is kind of brought into your life unfiltered, you know, through media, but it's also kind of like if you were afraid of snakes, Charlie, and so because of your fear of snakes, you avoided them, and all that time you're avoiding snakes, the anxiety is growing because, mm-hmm. you know? And so there's something about avoiding people that only enhances the fear of people and what would happen if I ever gave myself to the, the thing you can't control in a face-to-face, real-time improvised yeah. thing. And so, yeah, I'm all over the place here, too. <laughs> it's been a long day of teaching, Charlie. But uh, So the pushbacks, that's the first one. There are two others, maybe in descending order. Um, I'm not sure. The second one is solitude. So Sherry Trickle says, and I think she's right about this, that you know, media is, is giving kids all kinds of versions of self that they might aspire to be. And it's n- natural for a young person to try any number of them out for size and see, who am I going to be now? And, you know. But so the thought that it requires some solitude to be able to come to a true sense of self And, you know, you've heard this. I don't mean to ever slam millennials or anybody. I I don't go in for that stuff. But you do see studies that say there are people that would rather shock themselves, with an electric shock, than ever be alone with their thoughts, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Oh my goodness, how did we get there? Uh So um, yeah, that's not a slam on millennials. I think (laughs) the same kind of stuff is happening to all of us in a way. We're all losing patience with text. And so that's the third one. The third one is to still engage with books. You know, books are a technology, mm. but they do make some beautiful human poignant things possible to still read books, to still read books. And so those are the three major pushbacks, you know, that you can have what's good about technology, um, but still, but still have what's good about being human, you know, yeah, and, and not go through life, not knowing what it is to be in sync with someone because of how we describe conversation, for example, um, so what do you think I mean I have a I have a balance of that maybe I've got some theory that would say don't be too negative on technology but I want to let you jump into this yeah
0: I uh, um you make me think about I heard I listened to a podcast a while back um, where it was a couple of different um, like like big time endurance athletes you know like running 100 mile races you know rowing across the Atlantic Ocean like those kind of guys um, who talked about the um, because of Well, so somebody asked them, you know, what's the biggest takeaway from taking on an event like that? And both of them said um, it's actually nothing to do with the physical side. It was all about the way their minds changed um, when they had to disconnect from, you know, social media and their phone and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. And they were able to just spend, you know, a week alone alone rowing a boat and there's nothing else to do but that monotonous task of rowing the boat and being alone with yourself um or you know being on a wilderness hike or you know hiking the appalachian trail or whatever it might be and that idea that that solitude you know after a couple of days you're like wow you know this is different um but it doesn't stop after a couple of days it doesn't stop after a couple of weeks it doesn't stop after months no matter how long you spend away from that technology. The more time you spend away from it, the more you find yourself, you know, unwinding from it. If that unwinding might not be quite the right term, but the idea that it's you, you feel the pull away from it. And I think um, that uh, if you've been paying attention to some of the new science regarding social media, there's a there's significant amount of research that's pointing to the idea that social media has the same effect on your brain as, you know, hard drugs like narcotics and pornography and social media all do the exact same things to our brains. Um, And if you think about it that way, and the fact that you can't put down Instagram is a legitimate neurological addiction Mm -hmm. where you have like your dopamine is misfiring or misfunctioning or whatever terminology you want to use. And you see it that way as something that is controlling me instead of me using it as a tool it changes the way you think about
2: all that yeah it changes a lot of the way you think about lots of things there's a new book out I think it's called Cyber Theology or something like that that uh, says you're really kind of in some way dealing with people like you're like you're in a video game and people just become objects in your social world that isn't the same as real human interaction you know so yeah I tend to I tend to agree. Um, I think the church has a stewardship of things that can only happen face-to-face in, in presence, like stewardship of touch and the stewardship of the spoken word and orality and things like that. So, yeah. So Sherry Turkle, would, I think she talked about what you just said is losing our tolerance for the boring bits. She calls mm. it the boring bits. Everything has to be so stimulating. And if you lose tolerance for the boring bits, you have lost tolerance for, you know, not just reading, Um you lost tolerance for small talk. You lost tolerance for really listening to people. You lost tolerance for close reading of text and immersing, and and um, all those things that expand expand us and deepen us. You're just not able to go there to the same degree. So I think there is a there is a process of weaning yourself off. I have my students go through a 24-hour media fast. It's only 24 hours, but uh, you know, no tech. And just what was life like for that 24 hours? And I would say it's not that we're trying to get you off media, because the reality is you need to be able to connect the way people do. But just spend a day thinking about your relationship to technology. Just give me one day. And uh, even over the last 10 years, I think, you see things changing in the journals as students write about this. And you hear more and more about um, how their anxiety was lessened, for one example. Uh, but then you also hear more and more about I couldn't function. <laughs> yeah. You hear that side too. Yeah. It just couldn't function without it. And so yeah. Interesting. It is.
0: Um, so this is this is kinda of out of left field. Um, but one of the things that I've uh just begun to do recently because I picked up a new app and they're not our sponsor or anything, I just love the app is Brain Buddy. Um uh, it's designed to help uh people with pornography addiction. Um you know, get free of the pornography addiction. Um, And I downloaded it because I wanted to find more resources for guys that um, are struggling. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the components of it are daily exercises that are like mental training and brain training, um, which are specifically geared at, you know, being able to limit or be well change the way they use it. The term is uh, rewiring your brain. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But one of the big tools is meditation. And every single day, that you know 15 to 20 minute meditation time and it teaches you how to meditate is that something you're familiar with at all
2: the I'm idea not of meditation familiar, but i i buy into the concept from the standpoint of again somewhere in this mix is the epidemic of anxiety right we're learning to draw the lines better and better from technology to the epidemic of anxiety and um not long ago we would have said you know the. You'll take this to your grave that there isn't really any solution to anxiety. But mm-hmm. the more recent uh, research has said actually a meditative practice does something for anxiety. It actually literally shrinks the fear center. Now, I speak not as an ex- expert. I'm counting on whoever I read that said that, but literally sh- shrink- shrinking the fear center. And so um, that's a very hopeful thing to say. But that does involve, at the same time, you are weaning yourself off what I call hyper-connectivity. Mm-hmm. If I ever talk to my students about that, I, I I think that's interesting, but then I say, you know, this isn't why we pray. We don't pray for the psychological benefits. We pray because through Christ there's someone on the other end who hears every single word, catches every cheer. That's why we pray. But that it's not wrong to notice that there are the other layers of blessing that attach to to that spiritual practice. So you say, solitude, I'm all over that. And I think that Christians got to the top of that mountain ahead of a whole lot of other people. Yeah, You know, and so, yeah, important stuff to yeah. to think about.
0: Well, just as an anecdotal level, um, I found for a long time, uh, I would have to, like, literally have to be walking or like riding a stationary bike or something to say my prayers because I couldn't sit and focus long enough Mm -hmm. to say my prayers, which sounds silly, but is I mean, it's absolutely true. Um, and, uh, I found that just that 10 or 15 minutes of meditation before I do my Bible study and my prayer in the morning, um, I, all of a sudden I have the self-control to be able to sit down and spend, you know, 25 minutes with my Mm -hmm. savior. Um, Having yeah. a conversation.
2: Yeah. But the biking is good, too. Is see biking or running? or Yeah. That's good, too. I heard this recently. I think our whole faculty heard this at a summer thing. It was about anxiety. And one neat idea was to layer your habits. So the, the presenter was talking about how the emotion of anxiety and the emotion of gratitude really can't coexist at the same time. We can go back and forth very quickly in our brains, but you can't really have both at once. And so uh, the lady talked about layering, layering habits. So while I walk from this place to this place every single day, that's the day that I take serious stock of my blessings and everything God has done for me and to really and for the last few months I've been really trying to nurture that habit of gratefulness and I find it it, it does change certain things. It does kind of move the furniture around a little bit. So um, in the whole Samuel you of just turning the phone off and you know and um, crawling into some much richer habits and they're both, they're they're not exciting but they're not for that reason things that we don't covet and crave and things right. that bless us.
0: Um, is there a happy medium? Do you think um, when you start using, when you use FaceTime, for example, or Google Meet, or something like that? Um, I mean, obviously, if you can't physically be together, it's—I mean, it's probably better than nothing, right?
2: Yeah. Should we talk on the other side? If we've been—if I've been very down on technology, there's maybe another side to this. Um, anytime there's been a new technology revolution, there's always been those that have said, oh, no, it's the end of life as we know it. <laughs> and always those that would say, oh, no more problems ever again. <laughs> so there's th- th- probably something in the middle is what's true. And uh, one interesting theory is by a guy named Joel Walther, and he calls it social information processing theory. And the acronym is SIP, which is just kind of clever. And so... He started out looking at um, love letters in World War II, and so he's looking at relationships that are only experienced with text. And so, what he found out was, can they reach a place of significance? Of course, they can. Profound significance. The idea with sip series that you're getting the person in smaller sips. Okay, you're just you're just getting their words. And his his idea was that. Uh, you're really paying a very different kind of attention to another person when you only have their words. And it isn't entirely unhealthy that your attention is on words and mind and who this person really is. And so his theory went on to say, you know, if we're going to assume that nothing significant can happen on technology, that would be, that'd be the mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sometimes I find, like with my kids, that the distance that a texting, for example, offers can allow us to have some very significant conversations over text of all things, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the other you know, side of it. We, we're, you know, we're overreacting if we don't say this also is a tremendous blessing. And Once COVID hit and we first went online, I had to kind of rethink, you know, we mm-hmm. sing a different tune because this made it possible, technology made it possible to still have students and still serve them. So the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, I do like to think, again, that, church maybe has a stewardship because maybe that's one place we don't need a bombardment of images. Maybe that's one place we don't need to be you know exploiting whatever new technology during worship could allow us to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Nah, let's let's uh, still be able to sit and take in the word of God in a posture of receptivity. Let's still give ourselves some some quiet and solitude and yeah. the beauty of the sanctuary. And you know, so yeah, I I try not to get, you know much torn one way or the other yeah. over this stuff
0: well and that's an interesting thing to think about too is you know it's the way you look at church is church my retreat from the world or is it where i go to get you know i don't even know what the word would be but fired up to go back out you know what i'm saying like there people treat church kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum is it my retreat from the world where i collect myself and um you know is it my quiet time with jesus or is it my um. Yeah, maybe you know better than I do what I'm trying to say.
2: Yeah, I think I do. I, I mean, this has been on my mind for quite a bit. Again, um, I think uh, I don't know if this even speaks to the alternatives you offered me. Just know that <laughs> I think church is the place where I go to have God. Um, tell me what I'm worth to Him in in Word and Sacrament. And so, the fact that we respond is not unimportant. We respond with praise and hymns and stuff. But the main thing it is, is—that's secondary. It kind of closes the loop of this loving relationship with a God who's reconciled us to himself, that we would respond. It'd be, it'd be weird to be served a banquet and just not say anything back, right? But ultimately, it is him showing us what we are worth to him. It's him saying um, we are his obsession. Yeah. We are his one great thought. And It's, it's to be receiving that. And so whatever we think about worship and how it could change or might change, I think we need to be sure that we stay grounded in that. It it still is believers gathering around word and sacrament, Um, believers going to confess their sin and receive their absolution, also in the form of his body and blood in the sacrament, remember our baptism, and so on. So God God, intends to be ours for all he's worth, and that's where we receive that. So everything else is, you know, how do you process then? Should we have screens and what could be different as far as our rituals and symbols? That all comes after we mm-hmm. keep ourselves grounded in a good theology of worship.
0: Uh, and and uh, in a time such as this where we are, uh, there are a lot of people that are worshiping online. Uh, I think that and our earlier conversation, again, where we started applies as well to that idea that um, it's it's good to worship from your home, but you're not going to get the same um encouragement that you would from other believers um, sitting there face to face, you know, physically seeing the pastor forgive your sins, you know, and seeing the yeah. people around you right. also confess and recognizing that relationship with our fellow man um isn't something you're gonna get sitting on your couch at, home.
2: at home. Let us not give a meeting together yeah. somewhere in the habit of doing it. That's a serious thing. You proclaim the Lord the Lord's death every time you walk forward for the sacrament. Yeah. How are you gonna do that remotely? You know, yeah, um, are you familiar with the uh, I don't know media ecology and the the phrase the medium is the message? Is that something you've thought much about? No. So it, it's kind of it's interesting. The medium is the message is saying that. Well, the medium is like um, your iPhone or radio, whatever is the conduit, and the message, of course, is the content. And Marshall McLuhan was saying that the real stories with the m- medium not with the content. The example might be oh, when iPods first came out and they're popular and parents might have been worried about what is my child listening to now that I can't hear it, you know, it Charlotte Church or Alanis Morissette or who might it be? And so that would be being concerned about the message. Mm-hmm. But uh, McLuhan would say the real story isn't there at all. The real story is what the technology does to you and how it changes. So in that example. Music has just become a private experience. Mm-hmm. That's game-changing. We just yeah. found a way to bring our privacy with us out there in the world, wherever we go. We just found another way to isolate ourselves. And, huh. and those are the kinds of things that media ecology looks at. And typically, it's interesting that you really don't know in the moment what technology is going to do. So it can, imagine air conditioners destroying neighborhood camaraderie. How's that happen? No one saw that coming. Right. Well, it's all the front porches get you know get closed in, and now we don't sit out in front and chat and stuff. Huh. And so when you think about worship that way, you think, how long does it take to find out what we've done to ourselves by forsaking gathering? You just can't know one is smart enough to know what you just did when you said, this is convenient, this is normal. Now that I know how nice it is to sit in my living room and be in my pajamas and watch my pastor, you just don't find out maybe for some time that you just lost something that you're not going to recover very easily.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so
2: it's an interesting idea and it, it, McLuhan was kind of not a negative person on technology he just said hey it's here it's like a ship in a whirlpool you might as well study it because you're not getting out of it and, and uh, others take a very much more pessimistic view but it's, yeah. it's fascinating stuff it's fascinating stuff and part of what I think about so screens come in and I think okay probably okay but you did just change something mm-hmm. as far as Oral versus site dominance. You did just change something. Yeah. Do you know what you changed? Do Do you know <laughs> where, where this takes us? So I kind of feel like not being early adopters, early early adopters of things in the church, and having a certain bit of um, discipline and, and maybe even caution about those kinds of things. Yeah. What? Uh...
0: What's your biggest concern um, for like young people moving forward from COVID? You know, like, is there anything that really gives you concern about, I mean, you're working with young people who are going into ministry uh, and you interact with young people on a daily basis. Is there anything that you're seeing right now that really gives you concern that like if you could just send out a message to every (laughs) kid on the face of the earth, you know, between the ages of 15 and you know, 22, and just say, right now, focus on this.
2: I would say, please, for the love of all that's holy, I would (laughs) say, (laughs) please, carve out time that is disconnected and device-free. Carve out time. I mean, you know, we have, you, you see things happen, like busloads of kids come up to the campus to... To our college campus to visit and you walk through the student union and see 50 kids looking at their phones you know mm-hmm. and I think oh my goodness you know so i would say carving out a habit we're not going to take your phone away from you but carving out a habit of this is when um i experience people this is when i experience solitude everything you've already said so whether it's supper whether it's Turn the phone off at 7 o'clock at night. Brothers, don't turn it on until you've had a chance to do what you described, some good meditative practice of prayer, even whatever age. You know, maybe, I don't know, 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock is when I first ever look. I don't know. I'm pulling this out of my hat right now. But yeah. that'd be the thing, to, to not give yourself wholly entirely over to this technology, to not give yourself entirely over to it. Um, carve out spaces.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think that's going to be one of the easy answers to the next question I'm going to ask here is just carving out that and that time away from technology. But um, right now, our time together is really limited, right? Mm-hmm. Especially um, when you say, I mean, you can go to a restaurant and sit face-to-face with somebody without a mask, you know. You can go to somebody's home within reason, um, but it's still a limited amount of time. So what maybe tips or advice do you have to um, so just help people maximize the amount of communication we do have so that we're not um, losing any more opportunities than we need to. Like, maybe the best way to say this is like, what basic tenets can we abide by to make sure that we're communicating well um, and using the time that we have to communicate well? <laughs>
1: I'm not sure what you that
0: one.
2: Charlie. Okay, so
0: um, like the idea of, um, so now we actually do get a chance to sit down across from each other and okay. and you know be face-to-face. Yep. Um, what can I do besides turning my phone off and putting it away? Um, what is, is there any, maybe not tricks or mind hacks or anything, but that kind of an idea of um, what can I do to make sure Or just to get the most out of my communication that I have right now. I was thinking about, like, you used to have us in class, you used to have us do an activity where we are pretending we were sitting in the back of a car, like, on the way to a party, right? Right. And you have, you know, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but basically you have five minutes to get to another person across from you, right? And you kind of guided us through that. Um, uh, Do you have any tools that someone might use if they're saying, all right, I only have, I recognize I only have so much time, I, I, uh, I want to start moving back towards a good relationship with the person sitting across from me. I almost want to catch up or whatever it might be, um, especially for somebody that hasn't been able to communicate very much lately. Yeah, are there I, any good I, just I, tools to use? I
2: don't know. I think that I think that there are people around that can help you. Mm-hmm. You know, there. As far, let's say, a young person, for example, who kind of recognizes. Communication is this whole world, and I find myself running from it, as we said. That um, I think that there are older and wiser people and mentors okay. that can, they can help you with that. So my wife and I went to Thailand. This is this is what occurred to me as I was – my mind was scrambling for where to go with this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but so my wife and I went to Thailand about a year ago, and just a beautiful experience, getting a chance to take her and show her the world because I've, I've been around, but she hadn't much. And so we're with uh, friends of China people, and we're in this gr- retreat center, and gorgeous. And and I did my thing. I was presenting the book of Ruth, and so on. One of the activities we did, I think they do it every year, is that we got into groups of about five, and we all went off our own direction with just a group of five. And and it was there was some kind of very loose agenda. The agenda was just we're going to take turns and tell us what's up with you, tell us how you are, tell us what's go- really going on, and. And then we're going to pray over each person, or maybe I'll pray for the person to my left and so on. And boy, why did I have to go to Thailand to experience that? We were at that for probably three hours, five people. And it was just so rich. And, you know, we didn't think about the fact that we had our phones off or not even there, but that's what made that possible. You know, we could have easily destroyed that. But it was so rich and so beautiful. And so we're two or three come together, there, are mine. And, and so I think that anybody can experience that. And for a young person, it might take a mentor to just guide it and you know keep it on track in a number of ways. But I just think you you got to experience friendship. You have to experience that kind of connection. You'll never again be satisfied with, I can have my whole life be just you know posting things on Facebook. You know, so I think I think one good, rich experience of human connection could be eye opening and, and incredibly wholesome. So I would like to think that young people might seek each other out and so it depends on the level. My one of my I don't know if I yeah, you know, oh, my, one of my sons in law. This will sound funny. I hope this doesn't go out there and then he instances <laughs> <sits> out there. <laughs> but I think this was a public thing people knew. So a bunch of guys, bunch of guys Good, good friends would every now and then do what they called a feelings night, and that would, they would just do this very thing. They would take turns, how's it going with you? What's what's really going on with you? And whether it was girl trouble or whatever it was, they would just really see to each other. They would really just tend to each other and, and be, in, in a good sense, transparent and genuine. And like The scripture says, let us throw off falsehood and speak truthfully. So I've often thought, you know, for a person that really struggles with relationships, that one good healthy wholesome um Christ-saturated true relationship can be transformative. So I think it's a similar answer to what you're saying. Let it let a person experience human connection in in a rich Christian context. And um yeah, that's the best I can think of to say. Yeah.
0: But I think the, uh, so the immediate follow-up question like anybody would have would be, you know, where do you start? And uh, I think that's, a, that's, that's just as challenging of a question mm-hmm. and interaction. And I think the only, I mean, maybe the only even place to start is one of my favorite authors who's kind of out there sometimes, but John Eldridge just makes the statement. You know, you are a beloved child of the king. So let the world feel the weight of who you are and let them deal with it. And when you can do that, people, there, there will be people who are attracted to you for being exactly who you are as a child of the king. Um, and that might be the best place to start with uh, friendships, especially those kinds of friendships you're talking about, mm-hmm. where it's just one saturated friendship um, saying, all right, I'm going to let go of the constructs and you know the fears and just say all right mm-hmm. this is who i am let the world see it and let those who will come come and i think that might even be the best place to start what do you think
2: yeah i i, I talk often in my classes about transparency and being again adverse from scripture let us throw off, let us throw off also to speak truthfully and there's just a real power there of sharing struggles not as a grumble but just uh in a a more deeply optimistic Christian sense, but we can actually share our struggles with each other, our struggles, and that that transparency comes from a position of strength. It comes from, I know who I am in Christ, and I know nothing can touch it. My sense of self is not hanging in the balance right now. I don't have a lot at stake. From that place, I can use transparency in a way that can be very meaningful and intentional and help the people around me to to, uh, communicate in kind. Yeah. that they can go to that same place of honesty because we know who we are as sinners. You and I, Charlie, we're just a train wreck. You know, that's what Tullian says. More train wreck than we can dare to, can ever express, and more poster children of grace than we can ever know. And so it's sort of like, what is the reason to hide? Why would we hide? Why would we posture? We all know these things. We know who we are. And so we can, you know, speak truthfully. We can speak to the fears of each other. And so this it's... it's hard to fully articulate what we're both trying to describe here but yeah but the answer to busting free of of wall-to-wall hyperconnectivity and and to not miss out on what relationship can be is just to experience it
0: right? yeah yeah for sure uh well say uh the uh, flip side here of communication especially in this day and age um and going along with those relationships um and recognizing you know that relationships are valuable um th- what i'm trying to say is i want to talk about politics <laughs> uh, i don't know where that transition was going it's, it's yeah true, <laughs> okay we're there yeah Let's we're there now politics. um so I, so in with with Uh, I don't actually want to talk about politics. I want to talk about how we talk about politics, right? Um, And the idea that those relationships which are so valuable and which are difficult to build now are a lot of times, there's a lot of stress on them because of disagreements on a political level. And it's not even necessarily a disagreement about, you know, morality or, um, you know, faith or anything. It's just a fundamental disagreement on things that are outside of the Christian, you know, that that came out. You know what I mean? I
2: think Outside of that. Do. Yeah, we're a polarized culture right now. Right. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Where, where it's not a conversation of, you know, it's not a confrontation of, of it's not an intervention on sin. Um, it's just disagreement on philosophy of, of politics. And it's polarizing at the moment. Um, so I guess just your thoughts on how do we go about having conversations about politics without... Being incredibly disagreeable with each other.
2: Okay, that uh, I know. I just like
0: <laughs> threw it over there and let you have it. it but. No, no. Um,
2: let me think. I, one scholar named Paul Voslovak thinks he's onto something. He thinks that the most important communication skill, bar none, is what he calls meta communication. Right. So that's communicating about how we communicate or talking about how we talk. And I think one one approach to, you know, fraught situations, political or otherwise, is that we would talk about the way we'd like to talk to each other. You know, I'd really like to understand you. I really would. Um, Another scholar calls it the ideal speech situation that suggests that job number one is to create the kind of context, context where real, real honest, genuine sharing and interaction is happening. So job one is to try to find a space like that. And so it can be metacommunication. It can be that we actually address it. You know, um, Let's talk this way. Let's, let's not talk this way. C- because we can both come to a, a much uh, richer understanding of the other person. So it's a style of arguing, quote-unquote arguing, that has that as the goal. is to, um, to have me enfold your point of view into a more complex view. To enfold what I can from what you're saying. Um, to learn what I can from you even just the basic ideal of listening, of seeking first to understand comes in. I really want to understand this. I really want to know what this means to you and where you're coming from. So an approach out of apologetics comes from a book called Tactics by Greg Kukul. And that's kind of what's built into this. The same thing is how you you, uh, ask a person what they mean by what they're saying. Tell me what you mean by that. Tell me what you mean. I really want to know. And ask that as often as you need to. And then the next question is, um, how have you come to think this? Tell me how have you come to this point of view? I really, I really would like to understand it. So not, not gotcha, not get you in a corner, but no, 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 I really want to know. And then, the th- then the third thing is no. And then we can begin to say, have you thought about so and so? And so we are, we're such and such. We we are then ready to interject truth. And um, so, but I think the, the whole thing is to try to somehow get to that place where. There's this mutual, honest exchange when you say polarizing um, that, that triggers a, a whole thing for me. Martin Buber is a communication philosopher who ex- experienced and survived World War II. and he talks about communicating that is I it, where you are just an object in my social world and as opposed to communication that's I thou, where I'm now a person encountering a person, you know, a human being whose humanity I recognize, and we share human stuff. Well, the the major burden he had, the major thing on his mind, was the polarization of World War II. And the whole world lines up on two mountains, and then just hate each other and shout at the it across the way, you know. And um, there's a phrase that comes out of one of his interpreters called the narrow ridge. And so we come off of our mountain, and we try to meet in the narrow ridge in the middle. And the... The essence of it seems to come down, easy to say, not easy to do. But the essence of it seems to be a careful balancing of advocacy. And so advocacy, of course, means I'm going to tell you my position. I'm going to tell you the truth as I am utterly committed to it. You get to know it. I'll make my thinking visible to you. You get to hear it. All of that. But then to carefully balance that with openness. And it's not openness to error. Not openness to lies. It's openness to a human being where they are at and where they come from and what this means to them and the careful balancing of those two is an art form. It's an aesthetic achievement. But it's it's like part of polarization. You look around and you see where are the good conversations happening? And it just it feels it feels like they're rare, doesn't it? It feels like they're yeah. rare. And so I think I come back to that's the first thing. Can can we together agree that this could be a really powerful encounter if we both just you know if we're going to present to each other there's nothing I could ever learn from you you know Mm -hmm. do I want to have that conversation when that's the whole kind of frame of it is? there's not a single thing I'm going to get I'm going to learn from this I'm going to allow you no power to influence me in any way well I personally don't and I think today more and more it's the case that most people don't want to have that conversation that is sort of geared toward tearing down Mm -hmm. you know and I even think, from from thinking of the people in my life who are in a very different place politically, I they are really nice people, you know. And so I try to not totally buy into the the media thing right now that, you know, sells a lot of coverage and stuff that will just show us all at our throats. But the fact that there are decent people who we can we can get to this place with an honest, genuine exchange as we advocate our truth but remain open to their stories and, and so on. So again, all of it easier said than done. Um, so to keep it simple for the listeners, I, I would just come back to, I mentioned it in passing, seek first to understand. Just a basic, really basic principle. Let me be able to explain to you better than you can explain it yourself what your political position means to you mm-hmm. and how you've arrived at it. You know, let me show genuine curiosity in that story. Because you just never know how a person might present themselves in a political disagreement, but you get to the story underneath, underneath, and you know how different that picture can be. So there can be wounds there, and all, who knows, all kinds of, all kinds of pain, and there can be all kinds of misunderstandings and things they just don't know. And I think the very fact that you are laboring to treat a person this way with this kind of dignity um, and respect, right? Peter said gentleness and respect in the context of profound disagreement with the world. You know you're right, I know I'm right. That's the kind of conversation we're talking yeah. about. And it's quite a radical thought for him to say, even then, when the other person thinks you're what's wrong with the world, you know, that's Peter's context. So even then, gentleness and respect. And so And not losing our Christian optimism, the good thing can still happen. To, to not just give up and throw on the towel and, you know, everybody hates each other nowadays. <laughs> What's the point? Well, there is a point because these are souls whom God loves and bought with his son. And and I'm, that kind of assumes, I suppose, that politics does intertwine with spiritual things. But I think it just does. We're, we're having a spiritual experience mm-hmm. in this world, right? And so, boy, I get on these monologues, Charlie. You should, you should, <laughs> you should stop me.
0: <laughs> it's all good. I think, um, I think a lot of times, especially when these conversations turn to just but they just go to a bad place, right? Mm-hmm. And the level of conversation is very low and especially the level of understanding in each other is very low. I think the reality we have to face is that so often we fail, we just don't understand the other person's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason we can't see eye to eye is because we don't even know where their eyes are, you know? Um, and uh, often... Especially if you aren't uh, a practicing intellectual, maybe is the easiest way to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you aren't having that meta conversation. A lot of times that translates in a very real way into fear and hatred. Yeah. Um, and and when we say when we experience fear and hatred in regards to politics and things, oftentimes what we're really actually bumping into isn't so much fear and hatred as it is. Um, An inability to understand and we fear and we fear and protect ourselves from things we don't understand Um, and so when you come with that that mindset of i will seek to understand um, instead of instead of trying to be right instead of you know trying to win the conversation instead of trying to you know win someone over to your side just saying you know i do not understand why you think that way i don't understand why you think this is a good idea i don't understand why you don't like this person i don't understand where you're coming from show me um and a lot of times it's gonna if nothing else it will result in a bucket full of empathy Mm -hmm. um and often it will also lead to their acceptance of your point of view as well maybe not acceptance is in like agreement with you but their willingness then to simply hear what you have to say um, but so often our goal is to say our piece exactly, instead of seeking to understand and find common ground.
2: I, th- I think there are ways to do that. I'd like to explore more ways to do what can be called how do you change the moment. And you can change the moment with a little bit of empathy, as you said. You know, I can see how much this means to you. And I can see how much it must hurt you to hear this or that thing that you know I believe. And, um, so it's kind of at the basic level of conflict management. It's just that we need to we need to diffuse some of the emotion and de-escalate that. And there are certain things we can do just to acknowledge the other person, to confirm them. They're important. You know? Yeah. Empathy is, I can see how you might feel this way. You know, presentness is, I'm not going to turn you off just because I don't agree. And It's like the part of con- confirming someone is, you don't have to agree with me as a price to pay for me to treat you warmly. You just, you know, that's not a rule, <laughs> you know, that's not a thing. And so I think there's a certain amount of things we can do to change the moment and, and de-escalate. And, you know, and so uh, you made me think of Carl Rogers, he's kind of a flake in many ways, the father <laughs> of American psychology, just said some nutty stuff about lots of things actually. <laughs> but I think he has a real contribution when it comes to um, a certain style of quote-unquote argument and you made me think of it because he would be—he very much agree with you that a lot of uh, things break down in the failure to understand each other. Just a lot of things break down. And the second thing he would say is that a willing, two willing participants in an exchange can find common ground if they're willing to look for it. And it all—I can make this kind of fast. It all culminates in sort of a six. If we can agree on how to talk it kind of culminates in, in these six ways of talking. So I'll give it to you briefly. Um, one is, here's what we both care about. So whatever the controversy is, we both care about whatever, people thriving. Neither one of us wants anybody bullied for anything. If you're being bullied for anything, guess who's them on? You on? Know? Mm-hmm. And so we both care about such and such and such. And number two is, here's what I think you're trying to say. And we say this neutrally, not in a gotcha way, but Just in a way that would make a person say, that's exactly it. And we're showing an ability to hear somebody. And step three is to say, here's how I already agree with you. You might be surprised. So here's a set of things that, believe it or not, we are already on the same page. And uh, a lot of good things can be happening through this that we would start that way. Um, Step four, then, is kind of what I called before uh, advocacy. So number four is, now here's what I believe and again, you get to hear why. I'll authentically um, put that right on the table for you. Uh, And number five is, I know we don't agree totally. I know we're maybe pretty far apart yet, but I'd like to think that in a certain way, you might come my direction. You might, you know, before you said my point of view was hateful. I'd like to think maybe you could take that back because what you see now, and I'm doing the best I can trying to love you and and love the Word of God, and so on. So five is appealing for what movements you can maybe meaningfully appeal to. And six is just to close in an optimistic way, how great this is. You know, we said before, if this is a rare kind of event that people can talk this way, how wonderful. How is this not going to bless us and be a good thing that we can keep talking about this, you know? And so, yeah, I think that's really useful. I don't think it's easy to get there, but that's where I was thinking about the meditation metacommunication piece that two people can try to set the sort of I don't want to call it ground rules, but here's how it can be between us even though we disagree. Yeah. No, how many people are willing to go there? That I don't know, but this is better than biting heads, that's for sure. This is better yeah. than just shoving across that gap in the mountains, like I said. Yeah. So and sometimes I think just the other little pieces that the question of tolerance. So if somebody were to ask me challenging question about some issue, I might, before I even answer, say, can I first ask you something politically? Do you consider yourself a tolerant person? And the person will most likely nowadays say, well, sure I do. Yeah, I try to be. And then I'll say, well, let's talk about that. What do you mean by that? And that we can together kind of come to an understanding that we can disagree and care about each other. You might have a different view of what tolerance is but I think this is something you and I can achieve. We can disagree and still love each other. Yeah. You know, and once we can establish, so again, I'm, I'm giving you a micro-example of the meta-communication thing. What is there to talk about as we try to set up um, the possibility for this kind of conversation? And then who knows what can happen? Um, who knows if people actually can talk um, with that kind of openness and honesty. And yeah, I think, got to stay optimistic about it
0: i think it's kind of a uh one of those you know catchphrases, um and it gets overused and abused sometimes um but i think this might be one of those strong convictions loosely held conversations too. the idea of i know what i believe and what i think um but i'm going to offer you the opportunity to change my mind you know um and a lot of times those change your mind change my mind situations are actually more confrontational than not mm-hmm. where you're when you say change my mind you're actually accusing them of being wrong. Um but if you can have a genuine conversation where you say, All right, look man, I know we disagree. Just lay it out for me. Like what what do you think? Because um, I, I don't I'm I get, well again, I'm I don't understand where you're coming from. So lay it out for me. Help me to understand.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, that sounds like I mentioned Greg Kugel's book. The first chapter is called Columbo, The Columbo Approach. Do you know Columbo? I don't think so. Okay, Columbo was my dad's favorite TV show. So, oh. Remember Columbo? So it was this rumpled, rumpled uh, police detective who always yeah. kind of played like naive. Like, you got to help me with this. I just There's just something I don't get here. Just something I don't understand. And so that's where the idea of asking questions, like, so just what do you mean by that? I really want to know. What, what do you mean? Help me understand this. And how have you come to think that way? And he would say to stay in those those two modes as long as you can in these controversies. Just what do you mean by this? and How do we understand it? and How have you come to think that? And I, I think that's really useful. Um, I was in a conversation recently that I mean, something came up that was just suddenly sent my heart racing because it was I mean, you just f- like fraught with emotion, and <laughs> disagreement, and controversy. And I kind of went into that mode. And not that I'm good at this, but it was really useful, even if it was just kind of stalling for time a little bit, just to be in that mode of Columbo to help me understand. How, there's something here I'm not getting. You know, I would love to get it, and and so yeah, I think uh, I think that's a very good starting point. Whatever version of listening, you know, we're thinking of here, that's a really good starting point. Is maybe maybe before I understand this person fully, and can put it again, can tell her what she's thinking better than she can say it herself. Maybe f- before I'm there, maybe I shouldn't even worry about the pressure of words and what to say. And I've said it a thousand times in my class, words are weak when they come from a shallow understanding of what's in front of us. Words are weak when they come from a shallow understanding of what's in front of us. And so um, I, I try to help my students see, oh my goodness, this takes the pressure off. Situations I would have thought of as just high pressure, what in the world am I going to say to this? Well, let's not worry about that. Let's not worry about what to say. Let's, let's have it first be, I say to myself, I'm going to understand this. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many hours. I don't care how many times we have coffee mm-hmm. with my atheist friend or whatever. I don't care how long. There's a story here. I'm gonna. I'm going to use every listening skill at my disposal and every form of empathy at my disposal to draw that out. And what I feel, and I, I've told my students this too. I, you know, they're being theologically trained, and I say, I'm just not worried about you having good things to say. I'm just not <laughs> you have plenty to say. What I'm concerned about is that you would distinguish yourself in this kind of way that you'd be able to go to that place of doggone. I'm gonna understand this person. you know and that, but my experience has been that words start to come, you give yourself that time and that space, words start to come, but again it it means that it kind of becomes all about the relationship again before I describe it as a context we're trying to create, maybe better to say it's it's a relationship we're trying to get to of this sort of mutual respect and and, uh, transparent, genuine sharing of where we're coming from. So that's an art, too. That's an aesthetic achievement, too, uh, to achieve a truly spiritual friendship. Now, that may veer away from the political thing, but then again, maybe not. You know, because I don't know, I don't have a reason to talk about politics if it isn't something more important than politics that I'm trying to get to, Yeah. you know. Um, how does
0: and this this question gets weaker the more you talk, which is a good thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, how does that conversation how does that shift then um, when we do get when the polit- when the politics do become an issue of morality? So um, right now the hot button topics obviously are abortion and sexuality and things and the legislature surrounding them. Um, and there's certainly other issues out there as well where there is a there is a right and a wrong. Why, why is my sound so quiet? Anyway, there is a right and a wrong, Um, and our conversation about it can't, we, the, the, the conversation, as Christians, we can't have the conversation without stating an absolute moral right and wrong. Like, there is an absolute moral right and wrong when you're talking about abortion, when you're talking about sexuality and the idea of a spectrum. How does that conversation shift, then, Or does it shift, maybe even, um, from these... I mean, obviously, we're still going to seek to understand. um, Mm -hmm. Is there a point where that conversation shifts into something else? And if it does, how do we approach that?
2: I can think of lots of ways the conversation can go. Um, if, If, back to the advocacy or authenticity piece, if we're discussing something political... Um, that transparency would include, here's the whole reason I care about this. It tends to be that people who take the opposite position that I do, they tend to also be missing out on Christ. I'm just going to tell you, this is exactly what it's about for me. It really isn't about anything else for, for me personally. I mean, that's an overstatement. Mm-hmm. I care profoundly about abortion, for example. So there are other things with, that are on the list of things you care deeply about. But ultimately, it still is. even Even there, it still is really about who who comes to know Christ and who doesn't. That's what this is about for me. And so when you make that, and you know you're in even more sensitive territory when there's been the transition to that, and I can say I've had I've had experience with this in the last four or five years. Um, one, Just one of, there's a lot of ways to take this, but one of the things I've thought of is to take the transparency even further. So here we are now, we're on the cusp of a conversation in which it'll become clear that I think you're wrong. And you think I'm wrong too. Um, you know, the transparency would, would be in this case, whatever's in my head that's making my heart pound, why don't I just say it? You know what? My heart's pounding right now. Let me tell you why. It's because once once you find out that the, the truth that I stand for here, then I'm afraid that the wall's gonna go up between us. I'm afraid you're gonna just not be able to he- still hear that I care about you. I'm I'm just nervous about that. I'm nervous about the implications, and so it's in my head. I'll say it, and I've done this many times, and so far it hasn't gone anything, but hasn't been anything but a useful turn to take. You know. So have you ever thought about that? I mean, just it's in me right now that I'm. I know the situation is fraught. I know that this means a lot to you. Um, difficult for me too in some ways, whatever the issue is, and to to give voice to that, to to let. Uh, an empathy and a caring seep through,
1: yeah. But
2: w- but without holding back, yeah. I I I do think you are in grave danger spiritually, just from what you told me just now. Um, so we're not holding back, same. That's, just <laughs> that's piercing, that. just piercing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, not holding that back either, but you know, not to be dramatic, but that it might come with tears in my eyes. Yeah, you know. So. That's just one, I mean, there's probably any number of things we could say. What can I think about communication-wise about that moment and when the conversation goes to the most important place? And so that comes to mind first, I guess. Yeah. I mean, so maybe the other thing is I'm, I'm trying to advocate and thinking through something, and this maybe again steers from politics, maybe doesn't again, um, in apologetics, uh an apologetic of the Word. So an apologetic that is essentially really clear-minded about the fact that we are just really trying to get the Word of God open. We want the Word of God to travel through your mind. Anything I can help that would have you not hear it with just pure suspicion and, and contempt and whatever, but to actually get you hearing the Word of God. I remember overhearing Actually it was on Larry King, I think, overhearing some conversation Larry King is having with a Christian and Larry King is asking all the questions. You want to stick it to Christians with these questions and and essentially he's asking, Why do you think this is true? Come on, why do you think that's true? And so essentially he's asking for sort of epistemology which is how do you know what you know here, you know. And and the Christian, I think, kind of knows there's no way I can answer that question to your satisfaction, Larry King, because I, I think revelation is necessary because reason is a dead end when it comes to God. It's finding Him. Anyway, it, it just really hit me that the Christian, so artfully, in the space of about 30 seconds, suddenly we're talking about the meaning of whatever it was Psalm 22. Suddenly we were in the world of the text saying, What do you think this means? And I think that really goes to our whole agenda. Is we'll take more pressure off that moment when we say it really isn't me persuading you. Now that we're in spiritual grounds and now it's about Christ. Now there's another way I can quote unquote relax. But uh, yeah, it was so interesting. He just asked some question, but can I answer you, Larry, by just saying, "Have you ever encountered Psalm 22?" And before you know it, they're there and they're talking, talking that language. And, and Larry King was fascinated. You know, he was right there. And so um, the, the scholarly way of saying this is the church's number one intellectual task is not epistemology, which is fancy for grounding truth and reason. That's not our task. The church's number one fundamental task is hermeneutics, which is understanding our text, understanding the sacred text of Scripture. And I think that there are more ways than that one example of moving the conversation into the Bible. Just moving it there, not necessarily quoting verse by verse, not necessarily physically having a Bible open. If it's Something that really throws up all the walls of resistance for another person. But still, you know, it's, as I said, I think real clarity about what the objective is here. Real clarity. I want John 3.16 running through your mind. I just, right? That's what I want. And I'm, I'm not going to overthink it anymore. I'm not going to think. i got to grow this in my own wonderful powers of reason. You know, if it feels like a weak thing not to do that, it's, it's that the power of Christ might rest on that conversation and um, the nothingness of the man, myself, and the apparent nothingness of the gospel. You know, so um, I don't know. I'm I'm still thinking. Could I come up with a catalog of ways, if we call it the apologetic of the word? Well, the other one in my sweet spot, of course, is just telling Bible stories. You know, so I think there's a I think there's a range of ways. To introduce the word of God in the most natural way into those encounters. You know, asking permission. Ask permission. Can I tell you a story? Because I don't think you've heard it. And it's crazy cool. Yeah. You know?
0: You've already got me thinking about ways I'm gonna I need to I, I want to you've already got me thinking about ways I want to do change the way I'm interacting with a few people that I'm struggling with, which mm-hmm. is a good thing. It's a good thing. Um I just what as soon as you start talking about essentially, um, using the, letting the word speak instead of trying to speak on your own. Mm-hmm. This is rain and snow fall from heaven. Right? And I wish <laughs> I could quote it. I can't, but, uh, the there. idea <laughs> of, the idea of, um, if I don't know what to say, simply let the word of the Lord speak for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- who am I to defend the word of the, the word of God? Why, why wouldn't I just simply or let him Lord. do his work?
2: And I hate it when I see it in my own sinful nature, I suppose, Something that wants to erode the confidence in the Word of God, and is, you just can't surrender to that. You can't not fight back and crucify that because the only weapon we have is the Word of God. That's yeah. really all we have that is the power that has a Spirit married married to it, and so we got to get people. We got to get people um, into an encounter with the God of Scripture. Yeah. We just have to, and to spend our genius and twist our minds over some other way is really wrong headed. So even all the communication stuff is kind of need to bow down in service to that objective. All I'm trying to do is get heard. So I'm ultimately trying to do. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. I don't just my reflection of myself here, not necessarily anybody else, but how much of a, how much of a fool must I be to believe that something I come up with, something I say, Something I generate on my own might be more effective or might fit the situation better Mm -hmm. or might be more instrumental in the long term than the word of the creator himself. Mm -hmm. Well said. Yeah. Huh? You're not
2: the, you're not the only fool oh no i yes, i'm well know. aware of that
0: <laughs> well, i am really glad to have you yeah, with it's us great today to be here in your lovely house here yeah on Payne Street hopefully it's nice and cozy <laughs> yeah I like to tell the kids that oh i live on pain Street <laughs> bring it on it's the wrong pain but still um if anybody wants to interact with more of your work or read your books or um, even contact you um, if you're willing how can of they course. get a hold of
2: you uh, you're asking for email, or you're asking for... Um,
0: uh, well, what would you be comfortable with? Somebody, if somebody who'd never met you or interacted with take you an before. i yeah. Okay. What I don't is your email? Answer,
2: I don't know how to answer the phone if I don't know the number. <laughs> <laughs> so, what email can they use to reach you? Uh, it's paustima, P P-A-U-S, A U S S I M T I M A paustima at m l c w e l s dot e d u.
0: And if they would like to read some of your work, where can they find that?
2: Uh, well, there are two books that are already prepared to answer and more prepared to answer, which take skeptical challenges and answer them in a way that begins with a gospel story typically, but then goes into more of a prose kind of answer. So those are out there. Um, There's other things here and there, um, paper on vocation and stuff like that that can be found. but. Uh, I'll even share my dissertation with people that want to read a monster, with <laughs> monster on Kierkegaard in the Old Testament. But I share that freely, too. So Yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And, of course, if you would like to come sit at Professor Pauschen's feet for a semester or two, oh, you can absolutely. always find him up at the college. So <laughs> There you go. All right. Thanks for being with us today. My Appreciate pleasure. it. Always Thanks for fun. sharing your wisdom. Thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, make sure you're sharing it with friends and family, men in your life who you think need to hear our message. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, under the Gird Up podcast, and there's a Gird Up community as well there where you can interact with other men on the journey toward Christian manhood. You can find us on Instagram as Gird Up underscore like underscore A underscore man. If you'd like to help us bring our message to more men just like you all around the world, you can hit up our Patreon account, type in www.patreon.com forward slash Gird Up, and finally, please leave a five-star rating or review on whatever platform you use to listen to our podcast, whether it's iTunes or Spotify. What that does, is it helps us get more attention in the podcast world and bring more men to our message. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. Thank you for all the ways you support us and help spread the word. Until next time, go gird up and be the man that God created you to be.